We're in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 through 13. If you would, stand for reading of the Word of God. The witness of who Jesus really is. You'd be surprised at how many people question who Jesus really is. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and the blood. And it is a spirit who bears witness, because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in God has this witness in himself. He who does not believe in God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. So as you know, we've been going through 1 John, and the theme is in our text today, 5.13, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not a question. It's not a wonder. It's not, I think I do. You know, you talk to so many people, and, they say, and you ask them about going to heaven, and are you going to go to heaven? And I don't know. You don't know until you get there. Oh, no, you can know on this side. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God, with our spirit that we are children of God. It's not a, it's not a mystery. It's not a wonder. It's simply that you may know. John in his gospel made it crystal clear in his gospel in John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It is simply believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried, he rose again from the dead, and he took our sin debt on himself. Now, last week we talked about right belief yields right conduct. So once we're saved, once we're born again, Jesus actually changes our lives, and we actually act differently and are to conduct ourselves in a different way than we did before we were saved. So our conduct matters. How we live in our, our life in front of this world matters. And we talked about Philippians 1.27. That scripture says this, whatever happens, whatever happens in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the wonderful, the terrific, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct matters. Why does it matter? Because we are walking billboards of who of what Jesus can do in a life. We are walking billboards. And how we act through it all is important because we reflect him in our conduct. So why is our conduct important? That the world may know that this whole thing of Christianity is real. That Jesus Christ is real. He really makes a difference in our lives. That he is with us through it all. And guess what? We remember this verse when we were in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. You probably don't, but remember this. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you remember the emphasis that I made on that? That never in the Greek is five times. I will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. What a promise. What a God. What a blessing that the world may know that it's all real. And remember, our conduct is really predicated 
on how we are abiding in Christ. If we are abiding in him, we will then act differently. But if so often we abide in him, then we don't abide in him. We abide in him, then we don't abide in him. Our conduct will become more and more steady and reflect Christ as we remain in him, make our home in him, men know, dwell in him. And it makes all the difference in the world. It's not us. It is not us that will impact this world in ourselves. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory, as it says in Colossians 1.27. We don't make our conduct better by just saying one day, I'm going to be a different person today. I really mean it. Wife, I'm going to be different. No, it is God working in us as we yield to the Spirit of God, as we are filled with the Spirit of God, as we are changed by the Spirit of God. A natural overflow is a change in the way that we act and the way we address life in this world. Anything extraordinary that we do, it is him in us. It is not us. Now, this week we have the the witness of who Jesus really is. Who Jesus really is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, please teach us what you want us to know from this lesson. This is your word. These are words of life. Speak truth to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Through the centuries, there have been various views on who Jesus really is. Some people know him as a rabbi. Others know him as a rabbi or teacher. Others know him as a prophet. Some look at him as a great man. But others look at him as a false teacher, a false messiah. That's how the Jews look at him. Some people look at him as a, a liar. Some people look at Jesus as a lunatic. Isn't that offensive? Isn't it offensive? Yes, it is that he didn't even exist, only Christianity views him as God incarnate, the God-man, deity, Lord. All world religions and all cults deny the deity of Jesus Christ. In John's time, he was dealing with the Gnostics. And remember, the Gnostics had a a false view of Jesus, a skewed view of Jesus. the, The Gnostics were the ones that had special knowledge. They had special insight. They were the ones that were the mystical ones and that their mystical knowledge was greater than even Scripture. And John says, oh, no, you're wrong. The Gnostics did not believe that Jesus actually came in the flesh. The Gnostics exalted the spiritual and said that the matter or what what we're contained in doesn't matter. Jesus only appeared to have a body. Remember, we call that docetism. Docetism in Greek means to appear. He only appeared to have a body. And John forcefully refutes this. In chapter 1, he said, look it. We looked on him. We handled him. In chapter 4, it says he's flesh and blood. Now, there are all kinds of false views of Jesus through history. There was a guy named Arius that said he was a created being. He was not eternal. And you know what happened from the Arius philosophy, which was very popular in in, in early Christendom? We have as an offshoot of that the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, who do not believe that Jesus Christ is God that he's a created being. We also have a guy named Marcion who who rejected the Old Testament, that God was cruel in the Old Testament, and he's not the same God as in the New Testament, and Jesus was not fully human. The Montanists Montanists believed that, that the Spirit of God gave them a spirit of prophecy, and their prophecy exceeded even that of what is written in Scripture. And we have an overflow of that today. 
in many charismatic movements, it's the Spirit of God moving, and, and at least it's equal with Scripture what is, what is being said. And we say, no, the Word of God trumps everything. The Word of God trumps everything. So, uh, there was also a guy named Serinthius who was an agnostic. And, and remember this, Satan will do anything possible to question or to impugn who Jesus really is. All of these folks had a false view of Jesus. It started right at the beginning, and it has gone all through church history, and it's happening right to today, where people have a false view. Where Corinthian believed that Jesus was simply a man. At his baptism, the divine Christ came upon him, and then shortly before his crucifixion, the divine Christ left him. So what died on the cross was simply a man who had sin. Well, <laughs> this was, again, very popular but extremely wrong because only Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, could die for our sins. He is God incarnate. It questions the atonement. Remember in 1973, they had a, a play on Broadway called Jesus Christ Superstar. And it was blasphemous. And Mary Magdalene sang a song, you know, I just don't know how to love him. Uh, he's just a man. He's just a man. And I'm going, no, and it's being pummeled out there. He is not just a man. He is the God-man. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God incarnate. In our text today, we have threefold witness of who Jesus is. The Old Testament law required the testimony of two or three witnesses for something to be true. Deuteronomy 17.6 and 19.15. This week, week, we see this, the witness of who Jesus really is. And why is this important? that the world may know the real Jesus. And we are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ so that the world may know that he indeed is alive, that he is indeed alive, and he is who he says he was. So verse 6 through 9, the threefold witness of who Jesus really is. Now, I want to preface this with this section, with this is a very controversial area of Scripture, probably one of the most controversial in Scripture because verses 7 and 8 have to do with very strong verses that prove the Trinity but aren't in most original texts, and we will develop that in just a moment. So bear with me, verse 6 through 9. This is he who came by water, speaking of Jesus, who came by water in the blood. Jesus Christ not only by water but by water in the blood, second emphasis by the Spirit of God, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, speaking of the Gnostics at this time, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. Now, let's develop this, talking about the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And he, what John is saying here, very specifically, is Jesus Christ was a man. He came in a physical form. He was the God-man. We cannot impugn his humanity, his humanity. So, what in this text, when you go through it, what in the world does the water in the blood mean? Now, again, the Gnostics denied his humanity. And John is going to say, no, he was a human. He's going to be proving this. There's actually four views on this. 
And, the, and, and church through church history, people have had varying views on this. Luther had a view which was different than Calvin or Tutilian or Augustine. But I want to show you that these, these, these four views are, are predominant, but one has come to preeminence. And then I think there's a fifth one that you might want to consider. But just remember, in context, again, John is dealing with the Gnostics, which were a real threat to Christianity right out of the gate. And even to today, we have Gnostic thinking, secret mystical knowledge, enlightened ones. And that, that the Gnostics had a false view of Jesus and Scripture, that he wasn't really human. And John is going to say, yes, he was human. And we have a witness of the water. So the four primary views are this. It represents, number one, the baptism and death of Jesus Christ. That was Tertullian's view. Water and the blood which came from his side when he was pierced on the cross. That was Augustine's view. Now, all of these are, are, are depicting his humanity. Uh, depicting his humanity. Number three is purification or washing and redemption through his sacrifice. This is Calvin and Spurgeon. And then the fourth view is baptism in the Lord's Supper. This was Luther. Commentary after commentary, when you're looking at them, the primary emphasis is on his baptism. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. And we'll look at the baptism of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now the setting is John is baptizing at the River Jordan. And John is exceedingly popular, and his baptism is a baptism of repentance. He is preparing a, a nation that has been apostate, fallen away from God, for the coming of the Messiah. For the coming of the Messiah. And he says, he baptizes with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and of fire. And in verse 13, we pick up the narrative. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan. Now, the Jordan River is kind of in, it'll be in a desert area, so he's coming from Galilee down to the, probably the middle of the, of the nation to the Jordan River. And John tried to prevent him by saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Now, I want you to picture this, because this is John the Baptist, this is Jesus, and remember, John was very popular. And I would imagine that there's all kinds of people that are witnessing this. And when Jesus comes out of the water, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are recording this. I think they saw this happen, that the heavens were open. So you, we see this, the heavens were open, the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and it says in Luke, like in bodily form like a dove, alighting on him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, and this is everybody here, and this is one of those everybody's hearing things, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, John's baptism, again, is a baptism of repentance, preparing the Jewish nation for the arrival of the Messiah. Jesus was baptized not because he was a sinner, not because he was a sinner that he needed to repent, but to identify with those whom he would die for, sinners. He was identifying with, with those who were sinners who would become believers. This was the start of Jesus' ministry. And so he had also the Father's audible witness. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. 
You also have the Holy Spirit's visual witness of him descending like a dove. You have the triunity of God present at this event. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are present. So Jesus' baptism was the start of his ministry. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And just as a side note, a side note, I believe that Jesus did what he did in the power of the Spirit. You have something in Philippians called the kenosis, the self-emptying of his divine rights. He kind of set those aside. He never ceased being God, but he set his divine power aside, and he did everything through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a picture for us, because we have the same Holy Spirit. And what we accomplish in ministry is through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus' baptism started his ministry, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who descended on him. He was approved by the Father. This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. It all started with his baptism with water. It was the start of his earthly ministry and witnessed by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a real man who was really baptized, who was really filled with the Holy Spirit, just like us today. Now, I I just have a little picture, very common picture. This would be Jesus being baptized by John. And I want you to notice the Jordan River. A lot of people, when you, if you haven't been to Israel, you don't, you don't really realize how small this river is. And really, I wanted to also depict that there were witnesses here. Just picture the dove coming upon him as he's coming out of the water and the Father saying these things. It's a public witness. The Father is saying, this is my son. The Holy Spirit is saying, I'm, I'm filling him for power to, to serve. It is not what we experience today with New Testament baptism of identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. John's baptism and Christian baptism is different. Now, I want to give you a fifth view, and I think this one has legs. The water, another view, is his physical birth. If you would, turn to John chapter 3, verse 3 through 8. Now, most people are very familiar with this in Christendom. This is when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he tries to flatter Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you're such a great, wonderful teacher. No one can do these things unless they are from God. And then Jesus hits him right between the peepers, doesn't answer his question, doesn't respond to anything that he says. And he says to Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, who thinks they have all the answers, and he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. That is where we get this term born again in Christendom all the time. Born again, born again. We must experience a second birth. Why? Because all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins and have to be born again, have life put into us. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Now, what does Nicodemus think he's talking about? The original birth. A regular birth, a human birth. Again, enters a second time his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And again, this was a very confusing statement throughout the history of the church. Some people think it's baptism. Some, some people think it's water purification rituals in the Old Testament. But, this, but I think he's talking about a natural birth. The reason is, Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh, referring back, 
is flesh, a natural birth. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So think about this. A baby or a fetus is contained in an amniotic sac, a fluid-filled sac that protects the baby in the mother's womb. We were all floating in the water until mom's water broke. And what happens when mom's water breaks? Get to the hospital as quickly as you can. Baby's coming. Or if you're in the hospital and you haven't had the water broke, they'll break the water in order to accelerate the delivery. So this is just picturing that Jesus was human and had a physical birth. During the birth process, the sack is ruptured, the water pours forth, and the person is born as through the water. Number three, Jesus was human and had a physical birth. That's what John is trying to emphasize here. He's refuting the Gnostics who did not believe in the humanity. And he came by water like every other human, born like a man. And I believe that this refers, when he's speaking about this as a believer's being original birth, but we must be born again, born a second time. We're all born a natural way through the water, but we all must be born of the Spirit, of the Spirit to be born again. So the first birth was physical through the water, through the amniotic fluid, born of water, and our second birth, the most important one, of course, we have to be born to have the second birth, but for you to get to heaven, born again, okay? You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born again, John 3, 7. Again, we're dead. We're all born dead in our trespasses and sins and must be born again. Now, we have the witness of the water. Jesus was a real man. He came in the world a real way. But we also have the witness of the blood. What is that talking about? I think it's talking about his death. Jesus died on a cross and shed his blood so those who believe can live with him forever. What are we believing? That he died for our sins, that he took our sin debt. It's a substitutionary atonement. He died in my place. He took my sins. He took my beatings. He took all the wrath of God was poured out on the Son on the cross. He took what I deserved. That's what he's talking about. So Jesus was born like a man through the water. Jesus died like every man. Every man. So while Jesus was dying, we see another witness that isn't mentioned in the text here, but I do want to mention it. At his crucifixion, which we're going to go through during the next few weeks, things leading up to the cross, things that happened at the cross, things that happened at the resurrection, the sky was darkened for three hours from the sixth to the ninth hour. Why was the sky darkened? Because all the sins of humanity from the beginning to the end were placed on Jesus. And God was covering or was, was protecting his son, so to speak, from all the people viewing all the sins of the world coming onto his son. It was darkened from the third to the sixth hour. But that wasn't the only thing. The earthquake, the rock split open in Matthew 27, 51. And guess what? Graves were opened, and you have all of these dead saints walking through Jerusalem. Surprise, surprise. A little pitter-patter panic attack is happening. Look at this guy. He's been dead for decades or who knows how long. And then the veil was torn from top to bottom. You know what that meant? Now we have all humanity has access to God. We all have access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone. Everyone, folks, we have a witness of the water. 
We have the witness of the blood. There was a real birth. There was a real death. And then we have the witness of the Holy Spirit who descended on him as a dove. And remember, the Holy Spirit's job, the Holy Spirit's job is to bear witness of Jesus. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. He will point everyone to me. The consistent message of the, of the Holy Spirit is, here is Jesus, the God-man. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. John 16, 13, and 14, we will go through in a few minutes, but that is a proof text for this. The Holy Spirit will always act in accordance with the way Jesus is. He will always look like Jesus. Now, why am I saying that? Because there's been a lot of crazy things ascribed to the Holy Spirit. In my lifetime, we have seen people, and probably yours, people drunk in the Spirit, laughing in the Spirit, slain in the Spirit. Look at the Holy Spirit is the same kind as Jesus. He will act just like Jesus. John 14, 16, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. That word another is allos, the same kind, one just like me. You can identify him because he will act just like me. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Jesus is the God-man. To all the Gnostics, to all the doubters in the world who deny his deity or deny his humanity, he is fully God and fully man. Now, there's a problem with verses 7 and 8, and that is we can't use this text to prove the Trinity. It would be great if we could, because it's just right there, boom, 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 right there. But this is called by a theologian's the Johannian comma. And the Johannian common issue is this. No Greek text prior to the 10th to the 15th century, there's some variants there, record this. There is one Latin text written about the 3rd to the 5th century that records it, but the guy that recorded it was a known heretic. So there are no Greek texts that say this. We're not talking about the Trinity here today. This is not a talk on the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery. But the New Testament affirms one divine essence, monotheism, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now the question for all of us, are we going to believe the witness of God, or are we going to believe the witness of man? And that is in verse 9 of our text. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Well, let me digress for just a second. So that you know where this starts and stops in 1 John chapter 5, if you were to read it this way, there are three that bear witness in heaven, stop. This should not be there. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth, stop. So that section there should be diluted or taken out. So it should read in its entirety, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Just so you know. 
the rest of the story. Now, are we going to believe the witness of God, or are we going to believe the witness of men? Are we going to believe doubters or people that have a skewed view of Jesus, false views, haters of Jesus, or believe the witness of God? With the witness of his birth, the witness of his death, the witness of the Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that all this stuff is true. All this stuff is true. The witness of who Jesus really is. And I want to suggest to you something. When you're going through Scripture and you're looking at trying to prove that the Holy Spirit of God, this is actually one part of Scripture that you might be able to use to do that. Why do I say that? Because in, in verse 6, it is the Spirit who bears witness. The Spirit of truth. In verse 8, we have the Spirit, water, and blood mentioned. And in verse 9, we call, we call this the witness of God. And I think it's referring back to the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is God, is God. So, the witness of who Jesus really is. He is the God-man. And again, we have the Spirit, the water, and the blood that attest to this. Now, verses 10 through 13, we have the witness. This witness is so that you can know. You can know what you believe is true. You can know unequivocally who Jesus is. Verse 10 through 13. He who believes in the Son has the witness in himself. Now, what witness is that? It's the Holy Spirit. Again, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He who does not believe God, watch this, has made him a liar. Oh, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, if you don't believe that Jesus is who he is, you've made God out to be, that's a big deal, to make God out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. No one else. It is not in any other religion. It is not in any other way. It is exclusively in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. You do not have eternal life any other way except through Jesus Christ. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son, that you may know that you have eternal life. And in proof that you know, watch this, that you may continue to believe, present act and participle, an ongoing belief in the name of the Son of God. Proof that we are true believers is that we continue to believe to the end. Present active participle, continuing to believe, continuing to believe. So, you can know who Jesus really is. You can know who Jesus really is. You can know that he was a man, he, the humanity of Jesus, and that he really lived in this world, and he really experienced this life just like us. Guess what? He had some sadness in his life. His brothers and sisters didn't think he was so hot. Remember, they all thought he was crazy. He was rejected and rejected. He knows the pain of being here. But we also know, we, we know this, we know the deity of Christ, that Jesus is really God incarnate. And you know, John wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote seven I am statements, saying that he is the ego am I. The, the same one that was in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses said, who shall I say that is sending me to Pharaoh? And he says, the I, tell him that I am. 
And Jesus is unequivocally saying, I am the I am of Exodus chapter 3. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives up his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the vine, and you are the branches in John 15, 5. If anybody remains in me and I remain in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He is deity. He is the reason that you, that you know. He is, he is the reason you know this. The reason that you know this is that Jesus Christ is born witness with your spirit that is true. The Holy Spirit is also born witness that is true. And in John 16, 8, the Spirit of God convicts all humanity of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that all men know. And we know that in John 16, 13 through 14, that he is called the Spirit of truth. And he says this, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Isn't that what we want? In a world of deception, we want to be guided into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but, oh, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, Jesus said. The Spirit of God will bring glory to Jesus Christ. He never takes it upon himself, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. We have this witness. We know that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. To deny these things, we are saying that in this scripture that we have today, you are calling God a liar. What an awful thing to do. What an awful thing. And remember, God cannot lie. He always tells us the truth. We have a huge caution. We have a huge caution in Hebrews 10.29, a giant warning. He says, how much worse punishment do you suppose for those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. How much worse punishment do you suppose for people who do that, who deny who Jesus is? We've seen in verse 11 that the life is in the Son. In verse 12, all who have the Son have life. In verse 13, we know, we know that he is who he says. We can know that we have eternal life. And the proof that you know that you have eternal life is that you continue to believe. You continue to persevere in this thing to the end. You press on. You don't quit. God, God does not give us a spirit of quit. He does not give us a spirit of give up, but of perseverance. We have Holy Spirit guts to push on. And that's not just in the Christian realm. That is, uh, to be a witness to him, we push on in our lives today. It's not so easy to push on when everyone is pushing against you. It's not so easy, but we have the Spirit of God. Remember, Donald Barnhouse is this, calls him the spirit, of, the rod of iron up our spines that allow us to stand and to continue on. That's the Holy Spirit, the perseverance. And remember, in Hebrews 12, verse 2, we see that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He started our faith, and he'll get us to the end of our faith. It's not us in our power persevering. It is God in us 
that allows us to persevere. And what does he give us? What does he promise you? He promises you eternal life. This is a big deal. That eternal life, that word life is zoe, Z-O-E, and it means life in spirit and soul, and it happens when you're born again. Eternal life. Verse 7, John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life. The word eternal is this. It's anios, and it means forever. Now, I would suggest to you, living with God forever is great and wonderful. It's joyful. It's fulfilling. We'll have the peace that we cannot imagine. It is powerful. We'll have responsibilities in the kingdom that comes. It is going to be a dynamic existence. But to live forever outside of God will be horrible. Horrible. And he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is God's goal. So eternal life is great for the believers. It is not so great for the unbelievers. It would be awful for them. Life is found only in God. God is the source and the author of life, is the beginner and the end of it. Whereas the Father has given life in himself, so he has granted this to the Son to, to have life in himself. I have given them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand, John 10, 28. So, God is the one that gives us life. A man outside of Christ is only existing. Only existing, not really living. It's an animalistic existence. Real life is found only in God. Verse 13, let this be indelibly imprinted in in our minds that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. That word is, know is edo, E-I-D-O. And that means to perceive with the senses, to perceive with the mind, that we can know. The Spirit of God allows us to know that we have eternal life. Our inner being knows. And I would suggest to you, what a gift, what a God, to know all that will be well to know that we belong to Jesus, and to know this, one day we will be home. We are not home. This is not it. Don't put all your eggs in this basket. You'll be sadly disappointed. You know, the more stuff you get in life, the more you realize the stuff doesn't bring you life. You think you're going to be all happy with that new car? And then you take it to the shopping center, and lo and behold, here comes a shopping cart in your new car. Everything is winding down. Look at life is in the sun. We have the witness of who Jesus really is, a life giver, a life saver. Jesus Christ is the, look at, when we die, and we are translated into heaven. Remember how quick this happens? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, when we take our last breath, there, okay? We have measured, people have measured this, you know, the time of light to get from, from where you see something and perceive it in your brain is one six billionth of a second, a twinkling of an eye. We'll be that quick in the presence of God. Oftentimes we hear people say, I can't get the wait to get to heaven to see my Uncle Fred. I really miss Uncle Fred. No. You might miss Uncle Fred, you might see him down the line, but the centrality of heaven is Jesus Christ. I can't wait to get there 
and have him give me a great big, and this is my picture. He's going to give us a great big hug. Welcome home. Welcome home. All will be well now. Conclusion, the witness of who Jesus really is. In John's gospel, we read it earlier, John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's to everybody. That can happen to everybody. In his, God, in his epistle, he writes this. These are written so, so that you who already believe in the name of the Son of God would not be shaken by false teachers, but rather so that you may know that you have eternal life. There's always going to be false teachers. There's always going to be deception, even more as we get closer to the day approaching. You know, you, you are the, the remnant. You are the few that will get up on a Sunday morning and come to a church and be part of a body. You are the few that are truly believers in the Lord Jesus. There's a lot of people that talk it, but don't walk it or don't live it out. So, there's false teaching, deception, lies that are all around us, but we may know that we have eternal life. Know that we have eternal life. You must believe God's testimony about his son. And the worst thing that I think a human being can do is to call God a liar at this point. That is just awful. That is the worst thing that they can do. John Stott says this, Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him. Repent of your unbelief, of the audacity of calling the God of truth a liar. Accept his testimony to his son and receive as a gift eternal life that only the living God can impart. The witness of who Jesus really is. For you who believe, you know this. Listen to this list of things. Now, this came from somebody else. I didn't make this up, but I don't know who wrote this. But they wrote this. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was dead and brought life. He was risen and brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The world can't understand him, and it certainly doesn't understand him today. The armies can't defeat him. The schools can't explain him. The leaders can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse him. As a matter of fact, he confused them. The people couldn't hold him. Nero and ten succeeding emperors couldn't crush the Christian move movement, though they tried. Hitler couldn't silence him. Who is Jesus really? Listen to this list. And I hope this is what you think of him. He is my redeemer. He is my savior. He is my guide. He is my peace. He is my joy. He is my comfort. He is my Lord. And he rules my life. Humanity has to determine who Jesus really is. And when you do the research, as Josh McDowell says, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. We believe he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is God incarnate who died for you so that you can live. And you know what Jesus said in John 15, 13? Greater love has no man than this to lay down his life for his friend. And you know what he says in the next verse? You are my friends. You are my friends. 
You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, there's a qualifier there, isn't there? And I would suggest to you what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. That the world may know who Jesus really is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, you have borne witness of who Jesus Christ is. And you have certainly borne witness in our hearts that he is our Redeemer, he is our Savior, he is our Lord. I thank you so much for saving us, Lord. We did not save ourselves. It's impossible. You came and you saved us. You picked us out of the miry clay. Father, you set us on the rock, the Lord Jesus. You gave us eternal life. You gave it as a gift. All we did was believe and receive the gift of life that you offered. Thank you. Thank you for the work of the Spirit of God. Thank you, Father, for drawing us. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to believe. We could not do this on our own. Thank you for the gift of life that you've given us. Now I ask that you would... Take this message that you implanted each one of our hearts and help us to know that we know that we know and to tell the world who Jesus really is. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.